why it came to be. So I want to first talk about something uh, that's in our, our contemporary world. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't touch on contemporary issues all that much, but uh, many people have been talking about uh, Marty Sampson and Joshua Harris, these two people who have uh, become apostates. Marty Sampson was a pastor at Hillsong and a writer for many of the songs at Hillsong. Joshua Harris was a guy who wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Uh, many of you probably know that. If you don't, it's okay. The issue here is that there are some who are influential, uh, seemingly influential Christians, who at a point in their lives then turn their back and say, I no longer believe or claim or cling to the traditional Christian faith as I know it. As Joshua Harris said, by any definition of Christianity or what it means to be a Christian, I am not one. That's what Joshua Harris said. Uh, Marty Sampson claims that there are so many contradictions in the Bible and yet no one talks about them or clarifies them. Therefore, uh, I need to take a step back here and uh, think about these things. And, I, and I, what I want to do this morning is, is, is share with you something from uh, the history of the church. If, if, if you look in this wall here, if, if you're new to Fellowship Renewed Church, not, not at will. We're not talking about will. We're talking about like on the wall. These three banners here um, are the Apostles' Creed. I know they're covered up. We used to not have chairs there. Uh, but that is the Apostles' Creed. That is the earliest Christian creed. And what a creed is, is, is we are gathering together a, a summary of what the Apostles taught and uh, we, we kind of cling to these uh, kind of summary statements. And this continued to happen throughout the history of the church. At one time, the Catholic Church took over, and things became obviously very Roman Catholic. When you read Catholic on the wall, by the way, that just means universal. Um, but uh, if it has a capital C, it means a Roman Catholic Church. Um, but... Uh, so th things started to creep in in the church. Just imagine you were a Christian, um, let's say two generations removed from the apostles. All the apostles are gone. They're dead. And all we have are their teachings. We have the teachings of the scriptures. And um, some things that we have questions about, uh, we may think are not very clearly defined in the scriptures. And so we start to try to wrap our minds around some particular issues. One of those main issues at the beginning was this. Uh, who was Jesus exactly? Well, we know what it says in the scriptures. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's the son of David. He's the son of Joseph. He's the son of a lot of guys. But who is this guy, Jesus? How are we to understand him? Well, we know that he is God, okay? Uh, or do we? Uh, we know that he is the son of God. Uh, in, in what sense is he the son of God? These are the types of questions that were arising. So there was a guy uh, in the year 325. His name was Arius. And he had a solution to this issue. He said, okay... Could, could, could a person be completely divine, 100% God, and yet 100% man? That seems incompatible. That seems illogical. So Arius concluded, well, Jesus must not have been fully one of those things. And the thing he was fully not was God. Jesus was not fully God. Now, he was fully man, but his humanity kind of absorbed his deity. Okay? Later on, by the way, the church said, that guy's a heretic. Um, and uh, that, was, that was proven to not be true. Of course, we should know that. Uh, then there was another uh, guy named Eutyches, and he was uh, kind of coming from the opposite way. Now, this guy came on the scene about 150 years later. 150 years later, this debate came up again, but Eutyches decided the opposite. It's not that Jesus wasn't fully God. It's that he wasn't fully man. And um, so people started to kind of think, well, it, could this be true? Was he fully God, 
But yet he wasn't fully man because Jesus seemed to be something somewhat supernatural on earth, did he not? So could it be that he was actually more God than he was man? Or was he 100% man, 100% God? We're confused on this issue. Um, they thought they had it figured out when they said Jesus is fully God. But then a guy came along and said, well, yeah, he's fully God, but he was not fully man. His deity actually absorbed his humanity. That's what, that's what Eutyches uh, said. So the church gathered together many, many church leaders and said, we need to resolve this issue. Of what nature and essence is Jesus Christ? Is he fully man? Is he fully God? Is he you know, 75% God? You know, 25% man? Is he 50-50? Is he 100%? 100%? Now, to us, we might think, these issues don't concern me. Please get to something of relevance. There could be nothing more relevant than the nature of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you that. So there was a creed formed. As some say, Chalcedon. I believe it should be properly pronounced Chalcedon. Chalcedon. There you go. See, there's a reason that you're here. I heard, you know what I did? I went and I listened to about 20 different people pronounce this, and I got about 10 and 10. And I thought, what, how would David say it? How would David say it? That's what, that's what I went to. So anyway, Chalcedon is what we're going with. Uh, not what I would have chosen, but that's, you know, that's, I'm wrong. So Chalcedon, uh, there was a council in Chalcedon, and they formed a creed called the Chalcedonian Creed. And this creed is a summary of what happened at that event. So remember, um, th- there was a guy saying Jesus was not fully man. People had a, big, a hard time dealing with that reality. And so they got all these church leaders together, and they said, let's figure this out. They had a council to figure this out. And then what they did is they came up with a summary statement after much deliberation. Believe me, they just didn't get together, and in 30 minutes, here's what we believe. So I'm going to read this. It's in your bulletin. Uh, And I'm going to read this. I want you to follow along with me. Now, I think the problem is is that we're going to have, first of all, it's been translated from the original language. That's that's hurdle number one. Hurdle number two is that the language it's been translated with is a little bit archaic. We don't really use some of these words anymore. But my hope today is as we go through John chapter 5, verses 18 through 30, that we will come to the conclusion, much like this council did, that what they have stated is correct if we understand the terms rightly. Okay? So let's just look at what it says. We then, following the Holy Fathers with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, also perfect in manhood. That's why they're bringing that issue out. Truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood and all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages to the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, and here's a significant phrase, to be acknowledged in two natures. That's a big part of it. Inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each being uh, preserved and concurring in one person, one uh, subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers on the wall has handed down to us. 
Okay, so a lot of words there. I understand. I printed it out so you could take it home. Um, so here's a question I want to ask before we get into the details of what that means, because our entire text today, I'm going to let you know, is going to focus on who is Jesus. You might think you already know the answer to that, and you may. But even if you know what we're going to talk about today, you need to be reminded, as do I. Why? What would it change? Here's the question I want to ask before we really get into it. What would it change if I did not believe in the historic Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity? What, what does it matter, really, if I think Jesus was fully God, fully man, 50-50, he took of one nature to get another? What, what does it matter? I want to I read for you uh, just a, a list of four groups who I think are well-known that do not believe in the deity of Christ. They are basically non-Trinitarian groups. They don't believe in the Trinity. Church of Christ Scientist, which is Christian Scientist, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, and Unitarian Universalists. Uh, that's what happens when you don't believe in the deity of Christ or you acknowledge one nature above the other. And I think many other things, and we'll get to that. I want to share with you a passage this morning, just uh, likewise. Colossians 2, verses 1 through 5. This is on the screen. Colossians 2, verses 1 through 5. Excuse me while I take a drink. And here's what Paul says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that lay out a sea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches, the full assurance and understanding, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. Uh, stop right there. Go back one. Let me just comment. To reach the full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, in Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge of God. It, it, would it be profitable for us to then consider Jesus Christ, His nature, his, who he is, I think it would. We need to look and see who this, who this man is. All right, next. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Do Jehovah's Witnesses try to delude us with plausible arguments about the nature of Jesus Christ? Do Mormons? You better believe they do. And unless we are firm on what we believe about Jesus Christ, we may be deluded with plausible arguments. And Paul was wanted us to hold firm. He says, listen, you think this might not matter, but I want you, uh, there's a struggle within me. That's what he says. I want you to not be deluded about who Christ is. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and your, in the firmness of your faith in Christ. I hope today that you walk away with a more firm faith in Jesus Christ, who he is. Did you come this morning to give right worship to God? Or did you come this morning to get something from God? It's a very simple idea. Did you come to give to God this morning or did you come to get from God this morning? If your answer is you came to get from God this morning, that is not what worship is. Worship is to give worth to something. That is, I come to give God the worth due His name today. Worth-ship. Worship. I come to give God worth. And how do I do that? By acknowledging as something different than what he actually is. 
No, we need to acknowledge God and worship Him for who He is and who He has revealed Himself to be in the Scriptures. And so we do that this morning. I want to give a quote before we get into our text. This is by a guy named James White in his book called The Forgotten Trinity. I think it's helpful as we enter into the text. He says, True worship must worship God as He exists. Not as we wish Him to be. The essence of idolatry is the making of images of God. An image is a shadow. It's a false representation. We may not bow before a statue or a figure, but if we make an image of God in our mind that is not in accord with God's revelation of Himself, then we are not worshiping in truth. God is not to be edited to fit our ideas and our preconceptions instead. We must always be asking Him to graciously open our clouded mind and reveal Himself to us that we may love Him truly and worship Him aright. This is what we desire this morning. You have in your bulletin a little symbol that may look cultish, but I promise it's not. Uh, <laughs> this little symbol in your bulletin is... Uh, a, a representation, a visual representation of the Trinity. There have been some, I thought this one was most beneficial, most helpful. So what it has here, you see a triangle with a circle and other circles in the middle. The main circle says God. Outside of that, you'll see a little is words pointing to the Father, Son, and, and Spirit. And the Son is God, the Spirit is God, the Father is God. But if you were to break one of those, it would cease to be because God is composed of three in one. But the Son, if you follow it along that circle, is not the Father. And the Father is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Son. You see, there are three distinct persons within the Godhead or the Trinity. One does not replace the other, but there are three distinct persons, one God, three in one. So here's a little definition of the Trinity. This is in your notes. The Trinity. There is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that's a very basic definition. One God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. But I thought Jesus was the Son of God. In order to have a son, there had to be a time when he did not have a son, but he gave birth to the son. Is that correct? Or is that not correct? Let's ask some of those questions today. Let's look at verse 18 in your text. John chapter 5, verse 18. It says, This is why, picking up from where Jimmy left off a few weeks ago, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Equal with God. Equal with God. Let's ask the question first. Uh, who, uh, why is Jesus called the Son of God? Let's just take this example. I say, I am my father's son. Am I trying to make myself equal with my father? In one sense, no. I'm not, I'm not trying to say I am my father, but what I am saying is that I'm not a turtle. I'm a human being, and he is where I came from. So uh, I'll quote John Piper here. He says, when we call him God's son, we mean that he is of the same nature 
as God. Fathers create things unlike themselves, but they beget sons like themselves. So if you create something, I create something with my hands. I'm creating something unlike myself. It's not, it's not humanity. But if I have a son, uh, I'm creating something like myself. So when Jesus is saying um, that he is God's son and therefore he is equal with the Father, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I am of the same nature as my Father, completely and fully, 100%. John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now that seems completely contradictory. He was God, but he was with God. I am Eric, and I'm with Eric. You might say that sounds a little crazy. He sounds schizophrenic. But the truth is, is that he is God completely. But he also was with God, because God exists in a community of three. Father, Son, Spirit. So not only is he God and was he God in the beginning, but he also was with God. So not contradictory. He is God. He's been with God from eternity past. From the beginning of beginnings, he always has been. Eternally begotten of the Father. That's how we understand that. Eternally begotten of the Father. There was never a time when Jesus was not. Yet he is begotten of the Father. So when Jesus called God his Father, he was making a claim of equality with the Father. He was. But we might ask, wasn't Jesus called God's firstborn son? Jesus was called God's firstborn son, right? Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So what of that? Romans 1, 1 through 4. I'll just read verse 4. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness in his resurrection. I'll just make a summary here. When we think of the word firstborn, it means this. Jesus is declared to be the firstborn son of God in the sense of position and not essence. Here's what, here, I know that sounds very theological, uh, rightly so, because that actually is a theological statement. But it actually means a great deal that we understand that. Just as David, if we read 1 Chronicles 2, we learn that David was the seventh son of his father. He was not at all the firstborn. But in Psalm 89, verse 27, in reference to David, here's what God said. I will make him the firstborn. So it's a position. I declare him the firstborn. What does that mean? Well, if we continue on in Colossians 1, 16 through 18, it says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created, heaven and earth, visible and visible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. He himself is not created. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, preeminent means first place, to have first place in everything, to be supreme in all things. So what does all this mean? When we read... Verse 18, that Jesus, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, and he was making himself equal to God. Did Jesus have reason to make himself equal with God? Absolutely, he did. To say that Jesus is God is a theologically accurate statement. To worship Jesus is good and right because he is God. Now, is he all that there is to God? No. There are three in one. Now it goes deeper. I want to read a quote before we read this next verses 19 and 20. This is from jw.org. Please don't visit there unless you've visited other places first. 
jehovahswitnesses.org. Here's what they say about this text. Here's, if they were preaching a sermon on this text, here would be their conclusion. Just as the Jews were wrong in stating that Jesus was a Sabbath breaker, so they're saying, you're breaking the Sabbath, but Jesus said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really not. They said, well, he was wrong in this other thing too. Jesus makes this evident by what he says as recorded in verses 19 through 24 that he could do nothing of his own initiative. Clearly, he was not claiming to be equal with God. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses would say. Jesus is not claiming to be equal to God. They misunderstood. We understand them to be wrong, but why? Do you have any grounds to stand on to refute that claim? Verses 19 through 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And the Father loves the Son, and He shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. Now, if we just pause just for a second. So that you may marvel? Do you remember what the whole point of the Gospel of John is? That you may know that you may know that He is the Son of God, and that by believing Him, you may have faith in His, in his name. You may have life in His name. Excuse me. That you may have life in His name. The whole point is that we might understand who Jesus is, have faith in Him, and therefore become a child of God and have eternal life with Him. That's the whole point of the gospel. So we understand that in John chapter 5, when He takes several verses to give us details of who Jesus is, this is not something that we should just glaze over. It's not something that we should just move past enough with theological statements and arguments. I think you're exactly wrong with that statement. I think that is the thing that's wrong with the church. As we have done away with theological claims and statements. Instead, everything floats in ambiguity. Everything is ambiguous. Or you can have your own thoughts about that. Wrong. We cannot have our own thoughts about that. We need to have scriptural thoughts about that. And so that is who, if you have joined us this morning, this is what you've signed up for. Okay, so what does it say? It seems to be, though, that there is a sense of inequality of Jesus to the Father when it says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Doesn't it seem as though there is a sense in which Jesus is lesser than the Father? Because, well, I can't do that. That's left to the Father to do. It's like James saying, I can't do that. My daddy has to do that. But is she lesser than me? Okay. Let's continue on. I don't want to let too many things out of the bag all at one time. You might think I've already done that. When we read in John 14, 28, it says, The Father is greater than I. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. Well, there it is. Very plainly stated. The Father is greater than the Son? No. Again, we need to understand what's being said. When he says greater, in what capacity is the Father greater than the Son? These are the types of questions we have to ask. In what way is Jesus saying the Father is greater than the Son? Or if we read Philippians 2, 5 through 8, this might be another argument someone throws out. Well, listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What say you of that? He, didn't even, he himself didn't even think that he was equal with God. Or did he? 
Because if you continue on, it says, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Obedient to who? To the Father. So does it yet mean that the Father is greater than the Son and the Son has to just sit back in a corner waiting for the Father? Does it mean that? And if he is waiting on the Father, does that mean that the Father is greater than the Son? Okay, I hope that you're with me in this battle and you say we need to have some kind of answer to that. You can't just leave it. So I'm going to give you two words that are big words that are necessary words. Um, I really con- you may not think that I did. I really considered whether or not this was necessary to show you on a Sunday morning. I concluded, yes, it is. Because I'm not one of these people that when there are difficult questions, we just leave it alone. I want you to know. I desperately want you to know who Jesus is. So this is part of it, okay, in your notes. There is a difference between ontological subordination and economic subordination. I'm going to read a quote from R.C. Sproul, a greater teacher than myself. I think he, should, he explains it well. He says, the son, listen to this, the son does not send the father, correct? The father sends the son. So even though the father and the son are equal in power and glory and being, Even though there is no eternal subordination within the ontological trinity, nevertheless, there is a subordination of the the Son to the Father in the economy of redemption. So we have these two words, uh, the, the ontological sense and the economic sense. The ontological sense means basically who God is. It's the nature of being. This is who God is. The ontological subordination... um, No, there is no subordination ontologically in the sense of how God exists. It's not the Father is the greatest, the Son is somewhat great, and the Holy Spirit is even lesser yet. No, absolutely not. In sense of being, in essence, they are all the same, 100%. So in order of being, ontologically speaking, they are the same. But economically speaking, what God does, yes, it is different. So as as far as who God is... Same. As far as what God does, they have distinct roles. And within those roles, things appear differently. I hope this is beginning to make sense. Uh, one, more, one more quote here. God has given form and order to the history of salvation because he intends not only to save through it, but listen to this, but also to reveal himself through it. The economy is shaped by God's intention to communicate his identity and character. And so there's a flow such as this. This is, this is in your notes as well, I believe. Uh, it goes, the father is unbegotten. And that, in the sense, he is the father because he is, he is unbegotten. That's the wording that we have. That's how we understand his role in the Trinity. His paternity, in the sense that he is father. The Son is begotten of the Father, that is his filiation, that is, in the sense that he is related to the Father. How? In that he is his Father and he is the Son. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. We know that. 
when Jesus goes, he sends the helper, right? So the Father sends the Son. The Son and the Father together send the Spirit. Does it mean the Spirit is lesser God than the Father? No. The Trinity has willingly taken on distinct roles while remaining completely and entirely equal from all eternity past. Let's, let's continue on. So, what we've said in our text is Jesus said, truly, truly, I said, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Why? Because that is the role that he willingly took on himself, that the Father would be the Father, and that he would be the Son. That's the role he willingly took on. So, in the economy of the Trinity, there is a sense of subordination, that he willingly took on the role of listening for the Father. He willingly took that on. Not because he is less because he willingly took that on himself. So this is why he does not do anything of his own accord, but he does what the Father says. So now uh, we continue. Verse 21. We'll read all the way through verse 30 now. For the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but gives all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, if they were not equal... Would the Father be okay with the Son getting just as much glory as the Father? If he says, no, my Son is lesser than I, but the Son says, I need just as much glory as my Father, there would be a problem there, right? So, but he says, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That is an equality statement with the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from life to, from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has also granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. So he is the Son of God and he is the Son of Man. Not to marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. They will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Listen to verse 30. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, I know there's a lot here. I want to get through it in the next few minutes. You do have notes there. You have notes for a reason. Um, I want you to go back and ask me questions about this and consider these things. Now, this is part of the issue we get into with expository preaching in that I'm not jumping over this section and getting to something that's maybe a little bit more relevant for us here or, so, or something like that. But we, what John is doing in chapter 5 is telling us who Jesus is, and I think we better listen. That's the whole point this morning. Let's listen to what he's had to say, and, and we're just trying to understand it and digest it. Okay, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Does that mean that there is a contradiction between the will of Jesus and the will of the Father? Or are those things opposed to each other? We need to understand this, and this is again in the creed, the Chalcedonian creed. Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. Yes, we read that in our text and we know that well. According to the willed economy of the Trinity, Jesus became a man without losing the essence of his divinity. Correct? We've already learned that as well. But in so doing, Jesus has both a human will and a divine will. If he did not have a human will, 
he would not be fully human. If he did not have a divine will, guess what? He would not be fully divine. So within one man, can you imagine? No, we can't. But can you, can you try to imagine uh, uh, having in yourself 100% deity, but then also 100% humanity? Humanity is, is broken and desires the flesh, whereas divinity only desires the glory of the Father. The, the humanity desires that, that they would be sustained, that they wouldn't die, that they would have health, that they would have life. But, but the humanity desires for Jesus in particular that he would die. One question I have here is, if Jesus is God and God cannot be tempted by sin, as James 1.13 says, then how could Jesus be fully God? Because Jesus was tempted by sin. In what sense was he tempted by sin? What will of Jesus was tempted by sin? The human will. Was, was his divinity tempted by sin? Never. Was his humanity? Yes. <clears throat> Hebrews 4.15, just remember what it says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted, just as we are yet, without sin. Jesus has been tempted to sin just as you and me, because he was fully man, and this is what makes him the son of man. But yet he did not sin. This is the son of God. He was tempted with sin, son of man. But he did not sin, son of God. This is our savior. One who became man and was tempted in every way, every way that we are tempted, yet he did not sin. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Last real point here is this. And this is going to continue on throughout the Gospel of John. So it, it, we need to make it very clear right here. Because as we go through the next few chapters, especially chapter 10, this is very, very important that we understand this one fact, that there is a unity of the divine will. It is never the case that the Father wills or desires something that the Son does to the contrary. Or we might say it this way. Um, has there ever been someone who Jesus died for that the Father said, I really want them to be saved. The Son dies for them. The Holy Spirit tries, tries to work in them, but they never come to salvation. But the Father said, but I wanted them to be saved. If that were the case, there would be disunity within the Trinity. I have not come to do my own will, John 6, 38. Luke 2, 22 through 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Can we make sense of that statement now? My body, my human will desires life, but not my flesh. That's, I, don't, I don't want my human will to be done. I want your will to be done, which is also my will. So that's why the son willingly gave his life for us. I want to end here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So if you would turn there with me, please. How can we make any kind of application to this this morning? I hope, it has been my hope, and it has been my prayer. I've been praying about this text that 
in understanding Jesus better and his relationship to the Father, because that's what this text is all about. It's about the relationship of the Son to the Father, that in understanding our Savior better, our God better, the more we might glorify and honor him for who he is and the depth and the riches that are found in Christ. And so we read this, Ephesians 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Now listen to this, understanding the nature of who God is and the Trinity. Remember he said at one point, just read it. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That was verse 25. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Now pause right there we could do nothing but submit to the will of our flesh because we are only 100% man. Right? So we submitted to what our flesh wanted to do. The very thing that Jesus prayed, not my will, not the will of the flesh be done, but your will be done. So for a while, we were children of wrath. All we could do was submit to our flesh what we wanted to do all the time, which was sin against God and rebel against Him. But then it says in verse 4, but... God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the will of God for our lives. For all who have faith in Jesus Christ, it is his will for us that we would walk in good works according to him. I'd like to summarize what we've said this morning in case the details uh, were a little too much. We have said this morning that in John chapter 5, verses 18 through 30, John is laboring the point of who the Son is in his relationship to the Father. This is his goal because he wants us to understand who Jesus is. The church has struggled for many years to understand this rightly. How we understand it rightly is there is within the Godhead, within the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are all 100% completely equal. They willingly took on roles, and in those roles that were willingly taken on, Jesus has an economic subordination, not an ontological subordination, but an economic subordination to the Father. He is equal in essence and being, but he has a role that makes him submit to the will of the Father. This is how we understand it. This is right. This is what the scriptures tell us. And Jesus Christ took on flesh 
He had a complete human will. He had a complete divine will. Jesus did not have life any easier than you and me. But he was a man. Don't think that Jesus just had it easy, but he was tempted in every way that you are tempted, and yet he is without sin. And then God rose uh, after Jesus died and he was dead for three days. Man crucified him and raised him to life. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And if we, by faith in him, if we have faith in him, we too, it says, are seated in the heavenly places with him. And now, here's the catch. Or here's, it's not even a catch. It's, here's, here's, the, here's the really good part. is no longer, after faith in Christ, are you 100% man. Because God sends this very spirit to live inside of us. How amazing is that? Now, we had a Savior come accomplish, for that, accomplish that for us who were in nothing but rebellion to Him, only submitting to our flesh. Jesus ascends to the Father, and the Father and the Son together send the Spirit for all who have faith in Him. And now, we are not left to our own to submit to our flesh. But instead, we have the very presence of God living and working inside of us today. What are you doing with that? Because the, the scriptures tell us that we can quench the Spirit of God working in us. We do that by letting our fleshly will override the will of God working in us. We submit to our flesh. All of us come this morning admitting, I have submitted to my flesh this week. Unless there's somebody here that hasn't, let me know. Uh, all of us in this room have submitted to sin. But here's the Savior that we have. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He sympathizes with us. Could he have sympathized with us if he were not 100% man? No. Could he have accomplished salvation if he was not 100% God? No. We needed him to be 100% man, 100% God. He is the perfect Savior, in whatever world you can come up with, you will not find a